A farmer went out to sow his seed. And as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. He who has ears, let him hear. The disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing they do not see, and though hearing they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because you see and your ears because you hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. This, is a, this begins a series of, of seven parables that Jesus is going to be teaching. And uh, we're going to walk through the rationale for him to teach in parables, what, what these things are all about. So we come here to a turning point in Matthew's gospel, a turning point in Jesus' ministry. Up to this point, he has taught primarily, where do you think he's taught primarily up to this point? What's the local church? The synagogue. So if you follow up to this point, Jesus enters the synagogue, he's a guest speaker, and he's been primarily teaching in the synagogue. But now, because of the opposition of the religious leaders, he's no longer going to be preaching and teaching in the synagogues. He's, in effect, ousted, if you will. So he's now going to begin teaching outside. Here we see him at the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Another time, we'll see him on the mountainside. He'll be speaking and teaching on the roads in the streets. So he turns from the synagogue. Now he's preaching outside. Now think about this. This is one of, I think, the most incredible tragedies of all time that Jesus was, in effect, banished from the church of his day. Can you believe that? Just, he's not welcome. Because every time he goes in the synagogue... The, the religious leaders are on him like a cheap suit, aren't they? But that would not stop him. That would not stop him. Opposition is not stopping him from bringing his message of good news to the people. He's going to go outside and do it now. Here's a man, and I'm going to speak of him as a man, who has a real message to deliver. Think about that. When you have a real message to deliver, 
despite the opposition, and you have a real desire to deliver it, you will find a way, won't you, of giving that message out. You'll find a way. So there's a challenge, I think, therein for all of us. Do we have a real message to deliver? The question is, do we have the desire to deliver it? If we don't have the desire to deliver it, then we're not going to find a way. Is there opposition against our message? Oh, huge, hugely. But despite the opposition, like Jesus, if we really have a desire to deliver the message, we will find a way. Is that a fair statement? So I'll let you think about that. It's also in this chapter that Jesus changes his mode of teaching. He's now going to be teaching in parables. The parable is a story. It's a simple story that makes a truth plain. Now, there are very, very few people, I would submit to you, very, very few people who can grasp and understand abstract thoughts, abstract concepts. Would you agree? Uh, I think most of us simply think in pictures. Draw me a picture. I'm really good. I, I do good with paint by numbers. You know, just, just spell it out for me. Draw me a picture. I, oh, I think I get it now. Okay. So that's what Jesus, he's going to be teaching in parables. Think about this. Try to, try to uh, put in words what beauty is. Now you can, do, you can do an extremely good job of defining beauty and putting it into words what beauty is <laughs> and explaining it. And beauty is really kind of an abstract concept, isn't it? But you point out a beautiful scene or a beautiful person, now we know what beauty is. True? Goodness is the same way. You try to explain and define goodness. And it's going to be, it's going to be difficult for most people to grasp. It'll be difficult for me to grasp. Okay, yeah, I, I can understand. I can define it. But you, you show me a good person. You show me a good deed. Now, now I better understand goodness. Is that, am I making sense? So parables really take the, 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 the abstract, they take the truths, and they put them in a picture form so people can grasp them, so people can understand them. It makes, makes truth into a picture. Now, on one hand, a parable can really compel a person to discover truth for him or herself. Because you've got you've to think about what that, what that parable says. What does this parable say? Beyond just the obvious picture that it's painting. And when you are compelled to tease out a truth, because you know there's a truth in there. When you're compelled to tease that truth out, that truth really then becomes yours, doesn't it? It's cemented in your thinking. It's cemented in your heart. Now, we can spoon feed. We can say, this is what it means, this is what it means, this is what it means. And most of the time, you know, it goes in one ear and out the other. But when you're forced and compelled, really, and parables do this. If you're a serious learner, parables will compel you to study them and say, what is, what, what's, what's being said here? What's the truth? When you tease that truth out of that parable, that's when you learn. That's when you learn. 
But on the other hand, parables conceal truth. They reveal truth to people who really want to learn, but they conceal truth from people who don't want to learn. Maybe people are too lazy. Maybe they're too prejudiced. Maybe there's some resistance and some reluctance there. So parables serve one of two purposes, and Jesus is going to tell us this. It reveals truth to the person who desires truth, and it conceals truth from those who, quite frankly, are not interested in truth. Now, there are lots and lots of people who feign an interest in the truth. Would you agree? A lot of people say, oh, yeah, I want to know, I want to know. And you try to explain it to them, and it goes in one ear and out the other. I, I, I promise you, I've seen this so many times. Now look at verse 1 of our passage. Verse 1 says, what are the first three words, if you have an NIV translation? That same day. That same day. The implication is, some things were going on in this day. What were some of the things that Jesus experienced? Well, he'd been accused of being in league with the devil is one, right? He has um, turned down the religious leader's request for a spectacular sign from the heavens. And he has this interaction with them, this challenge. And he says, uh, the sign that we give in you is the sign of Jonah. And then, on top of it, his family comes to get him. And they think he's nuts. So at different levels, he's, he's had a hard day. It's been a long day. He's had nothing but opposition. Would you agree? And having had, I think, just imagine yourself. You, you've had a long day, a hard day, maybe a lot of opposition, a lot of pushback in your life. And uh, would you want to kind of get away? So what does Jesus do? He leaves the house and goes down by the shore. It's like he's going to go down to the beach and just look at the ocean and peace out. Right? He's had enough conflict. But as as always happens, Matthew says, great crowds gather. Wherever Jesus goes, great crowds follow him. And so... Matthew says he got into the boat, sat down, and began to teach in parables. This is key. He began to teach in parables. He, again, is going to do one of those numbers where he's going to begin to separate the true seekers from the not-so-true seekers. That's the point of the parables. Now, the first parable, he paints a picture of a farmer spreading seed. This is an agricultural world in, in, in the ancient Near East. Uh, many, many, if not all, the people who are gathered there on the shore listening to the parable, they understand, they get the picture of the farmer. And in those days, uh, you know, they didn't have uh, fences, and the, the fields were just, uh, just butting up against each other. And every so often there was a path uh, through the field, and that's where the people walked. And that path would, because of the foot traffic, would be beaten down hard. Okay? And you remember when Jesus and his disciples were walking through the grain fields, picking the, the wheat? 
that's what they're doing. They're walking on one of these paths through the grain fields. So all the grain and all the, all, uh, the uh, 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 growth was just growing up around them. So here's a farmer. And the farmers, uh, they were rather indiscriminate. They had a bag of, a bag of seed slung over, over their shoulder, and they would reach in the bag of seed, and they would kind of just broadcast the seed. And of course, if the wind is blowing, the wind is going to blow the seed. Okay? So some of the seed would fall on, first of all, we're told what? The hard ground. That's the paths. That's where the people walked. And Jesus says, and, and it, it doesn't penetrate. And so the birds come and take it up. He said there's a second kind of soil, and that was the, the uh, uh, rocky soil. That was soil that had a, a layer of limestone just below the surface. There's a thin layer, apparently, of uh, soil. And the seed would germinate quickly. But because it had no depth and no root, when the sun came out and the heat of the day, it would scorch it and it would die out. The third soil was called the thorny soil. And, and no doubt seed was, was spread on this section of the field. And there were probably uh, other seeds of thorns and thistles, uh, roots that maybe had not been totally cleared out when the farmer uh, got the field ready for planting. And that seed uh, also was choked out as the weeds grew up alongside of it. And then the fourth kind of soil is what? What kind of soil was the fourth one? It's good soil. Good soil. And it bore, that good soil uh, bore a harvest, uh, some, some hundred, some sixty, some thirty-fold. Now what's interesting is that a good harvest in, in, in Israel like this was considered, a really good harvest was eight times what was sown. So what's the number he uses? 160 or 30 times what was sown. So he's talking about what? An abundant harvest on this good soil. Not that what, they, what they would typically expect. So after he tells the parable, notice what he says in verse 9. What does he say in verse 9? He tells the parable, and then he what? He says what? Yeah. He who has ears, let him what? Let anyone with ears listen. Now you suppose he's talking about just, just hearing? Oh, I heard you. I heard what he said. No, what's, he's, he's wanting them to what? To, to, he's challenging them to dig down beneath and find out what the parable is really all about. Imagine the people hearing him, this great crowd of people listening. And he says, he who has ears, let him hear. And they're saying, well, I have ears. I heard what you said. <laughs> really? Really? Has anybody ever had to repeat something to somebody? <laughs> have you ever used this phrase? How many times do I have to tell you this? <laughs> when are you going to get it? Right? There in the single person in this room that hasn't been on the receiving end of that comment, certainly, if not the giving end. Isn't that true? And we, we just are so thick-headed sometimes, we, we just don't get it. Well, I heard what you said. I heard what you said. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. No, you didn't. Well, what do you mean I didn't? Because if you heard what I said, you'd understand what I said, and you'd act on it. Oh, well, I'm supposed to act on it? Yes, 
See, Jesus isn't talking about the act of simply hearing his words. He's referring to a deeper kind of listening. I mean, when Jesus talks, should we listen? How many would admit not listening and not paying attention, doing what he says? Every hand ought to go up. All of us are guilty. It's like God, God talks to me and, and, I, and I hear him, not audibly, but I know that he's speaking to my spirit. His spirit speaking to my spirit. He says, how many times do I have to tell you this? But I don't want to do it. I don't want to go there. And he just visits me again, visits me again. And pretty soon I go, okay, I get it. Now I know you're much like that too. So, But he wants, he wants a deeper kind of listening that leads to spiritual understanding. Now some of the people in that crowd, I suspect were simply curious about Jesus. They were among the looky-loos. There were other people who were kind of on the fence. There were other people in the crowd, no doubt, who were looking for evidence to use against him. And then I suspect there were people in that crowd who were true seekers of the truth. They wanted to know. They wanted to learn and they wanted to grow. They wanted to learn and they wanted to grow. What is it now? They wanted to what? Learn so they could grow. Now Jesus' words were for the honest seekers. He purposely spoke in those parables to weed out the half-hearted, the uncommitted, the curiosity seekers from the true seekers, just as he did in other places in the gospel. Last week I pointed out to you a couple of occasions where he shared this, his hard sayings. Like last week he said, unless you hate your father and your mother. I mean, to the, to the, to the average everyday Jew to hear that was, well, that's a hard saying. In John's gospel, he tells them the big crowds are following. He says, turns to him and says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. These are hard sayings. And they're designed to separate out the false seekers from the true seekers. And he does the same thing here with the parables. Now look at, notice verse 10. Who is it that comes and asks why he speaks in parables? His disciples. Nobody else asks. It's his disciples who come and say, why, why are you teaching in parables? They're asking why Jesus didn't just simply explain the parable. Why don't you just, why do you bother saying anything to them all if they can't understand it? It's at this point that Jesus reveals his twofold reason for using a parable. Number one, to reveal meaning to those who receive him. And number two, to conceal meaning from those who don't receive him. To reveal and conceal. In verse 11, he talks about the secrets and the mysteries. Look at this. He says, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. Now, depending on which translation you may be reading from, in the NIV, the word is secret. Other translations is mysteries. What are the secrets? What are the mysteries of the kingdom? They've been re revealed to them and presumably to us. 
but not to those who are true seekers. These refer to the revelations and the revelation of something previous that was hidden or unknown. There are the revelations and the explanations of divine truths that were not revealed, quite frankly, to the Old Testament saints. They had no clue. But now these things become clearer and clearer. The secrets and mysteries had to do with the kingdom of heaven. You see, the, the kingdom in the Old Testament only gave limited and an incomplete understanding and glimpses of what the kingdom was all about. The New Testament fulfills all the Old Testament. You read the Old Testament and you see a lot of places it's obscure. A lot of places you don't get the full understanding. Now you read the New Testament and you go, oh, oh, I see, I get it. And more particularly, the book of Hebrews does that marvelously. Let me give you some examples of, of some of these secrets or mysteries that have been given to us, given to New Testament saints, that heretofore were, were fuzzy and cloudy and not, not well understood. There is, first of all, the mystery of the new birth. In John chapter 3, remember Jesus' interview with Nicodemus? And Nicodemus is, wants to know you know, how does one get into the kingdom? And Jesus says, you must be born again. And this is, this is completely, he has no category for this. And so Jesus walks him through the process of being born again. And then he uses an example to show Nicodemus that being born of the spirit is a mysterious kind of thing. And he talks about the wind. And it's no, it's no doubt it's nighttime in Jerusalem. The wind is probably blowing through the city. You can hear the sound of it. You see, the, you see the effect in the trees. And Jesus points out the wind. He says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound. Uh, you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. He says, in effect, Nick, it's a mystery. It's a mystery. Now, here's Nicodemus. He's an Old Testament man. He is, he's a Pharisee. He's not born again. He's still got the, 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 the glaze on his eyes. And so Jesus tells him a picture. He says, you can't see the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. And it's a mystery how you get born again, even though Jesus explains it to him. There's, a, there's another mystery, the mystery of God's providence. This is always a mystery until you are deeply steeped in the New Testament and you begin to understand and see God's providence. Listen to this. This is in uh, Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Uh, how unsearchable, he says, his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Does that sound like a mystery to you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He, God's ways are mysterious. Mysterious to us. But now listen to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul gives us some more insight. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says to us, beginning in verse 6, he says, we do not speak a message of wisdom among the mature. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Verse 7, no, we speak of God's secret wisdom. A wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. In other words, God has hidden away things, wisdom, spiritual understanding, knowledge of his will. He's hidden all that stuff away 
to be revealed for us. Does that blow your mind? He says, none of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. So in the past, people were clueless. They had no idea what God had prepared for those who love him. But it's been revealed to us by his spirit. Awesome. Isn't that glorious? And the spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. These are all the secrets and the mysteries that have been hidden away from all the Old Testament saints until the church was birthed. And the New Testament reveals all these marvelous secrets. Are we, are we blessed people or not? Oh my gosh. How about this? How about the, the mystery of the future life? It's a mystery. Paul says it. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Whoa. The Old Testament saints know about that? No, not at all. Not at all. Then there's the mystery of union with Christ, union of Christ with the church. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. The context is about Paul's instruction to husbands, that a husband should love his wife as Christ loves the church, and, and they become one flesh. And so he says, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. That's the mystery, the union of Christ with the church. The Jews didn't know anything about that. Old Testament saints didn't know anything about that. Isaiah didn't know anything about that. Elijah didn't know anything about that. Moses didn't know anything about that. But you and I do. You and I do. These things have been revealed to us. How about the mystery of the incarnation? 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. The mystery of the incarnation. This means God becoming man, taking on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Beyond all question, he says, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. The mystery of the incarnation. Here he is. He became a man. Here's a good one. I've included this one because this will help people. The mystery of suffering. Every Christian should have a vigorous theology of suffering. Would you agree? Because suffering, what, is our lot in life, isn't it? And so he gives us a theology of suffering, and it's a, it's a mystery. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11 we read, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. How many would agree? I don't like this. This is painful. <laughs> well, later on, however, it produces a harvest of what? Righteousness and peace. For those who have been what? Trained by it. 
I've known people who, you know, God just, and they don't get it. Israel. Israel today is in one of its darkest periods ever in its entire history. Never been in a darker period. They are in the dark. They've been under God's discipline for generations. They've not been trained by it. There's no righteousness and peace. And the same thing is true in people's lives. You look at lives that are in turmoil, relationships that are in turmoil. And they say, oh, I hate this. This is so hard. This is painful. Learn from it. God's hand is at work training you. You had no peace? Get trained. That simple. Most of the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, they pointed to Jesus' second coming. They pointed to the establishment of his earthly kingdom. They pointed to the establishment of his subsequent eternal kingdom. And only hints are given about his present earthly kingdom. The thousand-year reign. Everything that happens after that. The Old Testament points to all that stuff. But you get really, really vague hints at the 2,000-year period of the kingdom of God on earth via the church. You don't see that quite so clearly as you do some of these others in the Old Testament. These are the secrets that are revealed by Jesus. The things today that anticipate the coming consummation of his kingdom. Then expanding on the idea that his parables were given to reveal and conceal, notice verse 12. Jesus continues in verse 12. What does he say there? Whoever has will be what? Given more. And he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. Whoa, what is he talking about? He's describing the twin virtues of commitment and diligence. Are you committed and are you diligent? Now remember, he spoke in parables to what? Reveal and conceal. If you're committed to learning and you're diligent to learn, do you think you're going you to learn? Yes. If you're not committed and you're not diligent, are you going to learn? No, absolutely not. Seekers and achievers... This is a principle of life. We all understand this. People who truly seek, people who truly achieve, they always receive more, don't they? Absolutely. I don't care what area, what field you're thinking about. And God wants all of us to seek and achieve more and more because it is those who receive and get more. He uses the word abundance in verse 12. He says, I've come that you should have life and have it what? Abundantly, to the full. He didn't come that we live meager lives. And I'm not talking about dollars and stuff. I'm talking about lives that are full and rich. No people know the truth. The complacent, complacent person, the complacent person receives little and gets less. You see this in the parable of the talents, don't we? 
we get back into Matthew chapter 25 later on, in the parable of those talents, the three servants are given uh, 10, 5, and 1 talent, right? And the master goes away on a long journey, comes back, and the, 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 the first servant says, look, I've doubled, the, doubled what you gave me, and the second does too. And, and the third one says, oh, you're a hard man. I buried the talent. And Jesus says about, he makes this general statement in uh, Matthew 25, verse 29, and referencing that third servant. He says, take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. For everyone who has will be given more and he will have an abundance. Whoever does, does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. Oh my gosh, that's a scary thought. That's a scary thought. It is one of the immutable laws that God has built in his creation. The early bird gets the worm. True? The late bird, does the late bird get the worm? No, the early bird gets the worm and he survives. The late bird doesn't get the worm and doesn't survive. All through life, people either gain or lose. All through life. People either gain or they lose. They seldom, if ever, stand still. It all depends on their, on their dreams, their efforts, what they're willing to exert. Growth. It's talking about growth. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. And maybe it will be given to them. No? What does it say? And they'll be what? They'll be filled. 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 You have to ask yourself, am I, am I, am I, one, am I one of those persons who's, who is, who's a learner? Am I hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Or am I just kind of going along doing my thing? Maybe I'll get a little righteousness here or there. Is it my purpose to live life in a righteous manner that honors God in every way that I possibly can or not. He who has ears to hear, what should he do? Let him hear. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. Familiar passage. Ask and it what? Be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He says, and everyone who what? Seeks, finds, whoever knocks on the door, it will be opened. Now the idea there, if you go back to the Greek text, it's in those, those verbs are in the present continuous tense. So you, you keep asking, you keep seeking, you keep knocking. You're diligent. You're persevering. Truth be known, there's going to be a reward at the end. If you have ears to hear, what should you do? Too many people run up against opposition, run up against a, a, a difficult way, and they quit. They give up. Ah, it won't work. It won't work. We all know that story. And if, you have, if you're a parent, you want to train your kids. Look, life works this way. God says to continue on. Don't quit. It'll get hard. But you don't give up. You keep asking. You keep seeking. You keep knocking. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 10. Jesus says, Who can be, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with what? Much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. 
You and I know that if we find someone who's been dishonest, are you going to trust them? No, I mean, you may want to. You may want to hope that they, they kind of learn their lesson, they turn a corner, but the reality is, is there's a little check in your spirit. The point Jesus is making is if, you, if you've been given light, act on that light. You'll be given more light. If, if you don't act on the light you've been given, that light will be taken away from you. What little bit of knowledge about God you've had will be removed. How many want an abundance in their life? Well, you, how do you gain an abundance? By acting on and obeying the little bit of light you've received. It's just that simple. But the fate of the non-believer is just the opposite. Because of unbelief, the non-believer has no salvation. The non-believer, even what little light of God's truth maybe he had, it's taken away. Life is always a process of gaining more or losing more. That simple. You remember Pharaoh? Yeah, it's played on Pharaoh's life. The law of use it or lose it. <laughs> was he given light? Oh yeah, man, Moses said, let my people go. This is my God, and you've seen these miracles. Pharaoh wouldn't. We're told that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then you turn the page, it says, God hardened his heart. No person remains static in his or her relationship with God. No person. Either you're gaining ground or you're losing it. That's what he's saying. The longer you and I know and are faithful to Jesus, the more Jesus is faithful to reveal his truth and his love to us. The more you walk with him, the more you commit your way to him, the more you say, and you may not understand stuff, but you read it and it says, this is the way, walk in it, and you say, okay. We want to just, we want to have all the cognitive knowledge and figure it all out in advance. And knowledge only comes biblically as a result of obedience. It's only as I obey, only as I live out what I have been told, what I've heard, am I going to realize more light. Is it, am I making sense here? Amen. Willful human rejection leads to divine judicial rejection. When a person says no to God, God says no to that person. God says no to that person. And he confirms people in their stubbornness and he binds them with their own chains of unbelief. This is what he did to Pharaoh. Stubbornness. He confirmed Pharaoh in his stubbornness. And he bound Pharaoh in his own chains of unbelief. Now look at verses 13 through 15. Jesus describes the condition of the Jews of his day. He says, this is why I speak to them in parables. He says, this is, this is the characteristic. He says, though seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not hear and understand. These people simply refuse to understand. And now he's going to quote a passage from Isaiah chapter 6. This is, this is 
this is astounding when you understand the context. In Isaiah chapter 6, he quotes that little verses 9 and 10, saying in effect, these people are a fulfillment of Isaiah's words. That generation that he's speaking to, they are a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Let me back you up into Isaiah's prophecy. Let me give you the context. Isaiah prophesied to the Jews of his day. And he prophesied to them about judgment. Judgment is coming. And it's coming through the Babylonians. Now the Assyrian hordes had already swept down from the north and carried off the ten northern tribes and left Judah, the one tribe remnant in the south. And Judah turned out to be worse than her sister Israel in the north. And so Isaiah comes and prophesies to Judah. He says, unless you repent of your immorality, of your debauchery, of your idolatry, of your, and he just, a long list of sins. If you do not repent, the Babylonians are coming. Though, and as, as, as vile and as um, vicious as the Assyrians were, the Babylonians were worse. Do the Jews repent? Do the Jews hear, hear, the, hear the call? Judgment's, judgment's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Do they cry out to God for mercy? Do they repent and ask for forgiveness? No. And so what happens? The Babylonians come. God brings the Babylonians in the, in the year, in verse 1 of chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, the king of Judah, in that year, the nation was plunged into its darkest time. It was, Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. Thousands upon thousands of Jews in Judah were slaughtered by the Babylonians. The remnant was carried off into Babylon for 70 years of captivity. And now that was the first fulfillment of Isaiah's words, his own generation. Jesus is saying, here's the second fulfillment to this generation that he's speaking to. That's why he quotes Isaiah. I'm speaking to you, he says. They know their history. They know the prophecies. But now he's, he's applying that prophecy as the second fulfillment to them. They too are a wicked, hard-hearted generation. And they're about to be carried off into captivity as they turn their backs again to the Lord. And that would plunge them into judgment for centuries, centuries. And they've been in that place ever since. Verses 16 and 17, the disciples, Jesus says, were blessed. Because why? They wanted to understand. They wanted to understand. I want to know. Even if they didn't completely understand, they wanted to. The implication is that you and I, even though we don't fully get it all, we, 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 want, to, we want to understand, we want to know. When I first came to this church, I knew nothing. I'd never owned a Bible, never read the Bible. And yet, God's spirit in me just quickened me. I wanted to know the truth. You couldn't, you couldn't stop me from reading. You couldn't stop me from listening to tapes. You couldn't stop me from reading my Bible. I still today have an insatiable appetite. 
You want to learn. You want to learn. So Jesus says to his disciples, in effect, he says, I'm the fulfillment of all those Old Testament prophecies. I'm the fulfillment. You want to know the truth? Look to me. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Even the angels in heaven don't have the understanding that you and I have as we, as God reveals these mysteries and these secrets to us. And he reveals them to us because why? We are seeking. And the more we seek, the more he reveals. The more he reveals, the more we grow. The more we grow, the more godly we become. It's that simple. The Old Testament believers saw and heard about God's care for his people. They saw, they saw miracles. They saw the exodus. They saw all the, all the miracles that Moses worked. You read, you read again and again through the Old Testament, the recounting of all those events, the recounting of God's faithfulness, the giving of his law, Mount Sinai, the building of the temple, and on and on and on. They knew all those things. They rehearsed them and they saw them and experienced them. But still, God's greatest news was murky to them and distant to them. The good news. The good news. The disciples and followers who saw and heard Jesus, Jesus says, you are highly, highly privileged. Why? Because they're firsthand witnesses. John would say, I'm not making up tales. These aren't stories. We saw him. We heard him with our own ears. We saw him with our own eyes. We touched him. It's all true. But the real benefit belongs to us. This is amazing. Not just to the believers back then that Jesus was talking to directly. The real benefit belongs to us. Think about this. We have Jesus living in us by his spirit, do we not? The spirit of Christ lives in us. The spirit of Christ has sealed us for the day of redemption. We have the spirit of Christ in us. We have the whole New Testament the whole New Testament, we have everything that God has revealed. Do we need any more? No. And on top of it, we have 2,000 years of the Holy Spirit working through the church. We have church history to learn from as a testimony and evidence of what God has revealed and what he's done. Such riches have been passed to us. Grasp them. Love them. Cherish them. Be grateful for them. Rejoice over them. Be in awe. And be committed. Be committed to the best use of all that God has made available. If we have ears to hear, let us what? Let us hear. Let's get it. Let's put it into action. 
Jesus says this, Luke chapter 12, your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Isn't that beautiful? I've always loved that phrase. Your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. The question is, are we receiving it? Are we embracing it? And are we living it out? What are we doing with the kingdom? Do we have ears to hear or not? If you got a little bit and you're not acting on it, it's going to be taken away. It's not enough to say, well, I, I, I believe in Jesus, I'm saved. No, no, no. no you're, you're in danger. You want to press on into the kingdom. If you have ears to hear, as Jesus says, hear. Next week, that's the introduction. Next week, we're going to dive down deep into the parable. Okay? Excited? Oh, just don't you love God's word? It's so rich. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We love you again tonight. Jesus, I love you. I love your word. I love your church. I love your mission. I love your people. We thank you. We're humbled by your grace to us. What a privilege it is for us to gather together and to urge each other on, Lord, as we anticipate the coming of that day. We thank you. Have your way in our life, please. Stir us up. Lord, help us to have ears that truly hear. We love you tonight. Amen, church? Amen and amen. Turn to your neighbor, pronounce a blessing on your neighbor in the name of Jesus, if you would. Bless your neighbor. That blessing will carry throughout the week. Let's stand together and sing his praises one more time before we dismiss. Let's respond to God's grace and God's word, amen, with worship. Let's all stand and sing together. Call the, call the elders. And the elders will be up front to pray for those who have need. So receive prayer tonight. Be so desired. Let's sing about Jesus coming back. All of creation.